So John's been recording for us these four strategic post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, each one answering a very specific uh, aspect of the question, what does the resurrection change? It changes everything. It changes our relationships. It changes our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with Jesus. It changes our relationship with one another. It changes our relationship to the, war- the world, our mission to the world. It, it silences skepticism. The word of God enables us to believe in Jesus, to follow him, the resurrected Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And then we saw last week that the resurrection redeems our failure. The resurrection redeems our failure. We looked at this last week, the beginning of John chapter 21, where Jesus masterfully spotlights the disciples' self-reliance. They think we're not good at anything, but we're at least good at fishing. We can't do anything as far as ministry is concerned. We failed our Savior. We're not good at this ministry stuff, but we're good at fishing. And they go to try fishing and they fail. And Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. They do. They catch because he is all sufficient. And when they show up on the beach, he already has fish being fried. They don't, he doesn't need them. Their catch was not necessary for the Savior to be uh, useful in using what they had done. So we looked last week at needing to renounce self-reliance. We need to renounce self-reliance. We need to rely fully on the Savior. We are all, all are far too self-reliant, and we know that we're guilty of this. We know that we are prideful, that we are confident in our own abilities, self-reliant. And so the question that we were posing at the end of last week is, what do we do now? We saw the disciples get all their legs knocked out from under them. They know we have nothing to stand on. We fall only on Christ. He is our sufficiency. What do we do now? How are we supposed to move forward? How are we supposed to be effective in discipling others. If you sit here this morning, and maybe last week, several of you said last week, man, I I see my failure. I I know that I rely on on myself too much, and I, I see that I can't do that. What should I do? Jesus is going to answer that question this morning. But first, let me just say right off the bat, you're well on your way to glorifying the Lord as a disciple of Christ. If you say, I'm a failure, I need help, I'm self-reliant, I don't know what to do, you're well on your way. Because God has only ever used ordinary people distinguished by their obvious failures. No one that God uses in the Bible or outside the Bible is ever worthy enough to merit the task for which God calls them and uses them. One of the things that I have loved about our Bible reading plan this last semester as a church was going through Hebrews. We spent a good amount of time in Hebrews 11, and we look at these people that are in the quote-unquote Hall of Fame of Faith chapter that are just disasters. We, We think that there are heroes of the faith, and yes, godly men and women in the Bible and outside the Bible do heroic things for God. They are heroes of the faith because they serve a faithful God, yes. But every single one of those heroes is a failure. Just think of Noah and the way that he glorified the Lord in what he did, and then at the end, he's a drunkard. Just think of Abraham, the way that he glorifies the Lord by faith, just getting up, okay, I'll go where you tell me to go, and he's a liar. Jacob's a deceiver. Gideon's an idolater. Samson lusts after a prostitute. There are so many different people, David, Solomon, Jonah. Jonah's just a racist. 
What, what are we to do with these people? What are we do, to do with their failures? What does God do with them? And then we look at Peter. I mean, he's the most notorious of all. His failures are disqualifying. We saw him earlier saying to Jesus, if it's really you on the water, tell me to come to you. And then he sinks because of his lack of faith. At Caesarea Philippi, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right. You can't say that except for the Father giving you the ability to say that. And then he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're wrong. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. In the upper room, the evening before Jesus' arrest, betrayal, crucifixion, Peter promised and he vowed, I will never fall away. Though all these disciples will fall away, I will never fall away. Just look at Peter's resume. On his resume, listed out as a man who's going to be used by God, he occasionally speaks for the devil. He disagrees with the Son of God. He disagrees with God. He says, no, God, you're wrong. And he occasionally rebukes the Son of God, and he denies Jesus three times. That's on his resume. Would you be thinking, if you were Peter, I can be saved, I can be forgiven, but I cannot be used by God anymore. I'm not useful for the work of the kingdom. Sure, the gospel can save, but can the gospel and can the resurrected Christ fit Peter and fit you and I as failures for effective gospel ministry? We want to be effective in disciple-making. The resurrection of Jesus delivers defective disciples from destruction. If you want to be an effective follower of Christ and you want to be used mightily under his strength and by his power, then let's listen to Jesus address Peter because he's going to give us all the tools that we need to overcome the failures that we always live out and pursue righteousness and pursue glorifying the Lord. John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Peter turned around, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You 
follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What's that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Father, we come before you this morning and we are expectant people. We are hopeful people. We come in through these doors admitting our failure and that's why we sit down here in this room because only you can strengthen us for the task to which we've been called. So we're expectant. Teach us, instruct us, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. And as you speak to Peter, may we eavesdrop on this and hear you speaking to our hearts. Because the same question that you asked Peter three times so many years ago, you are asking to us this morning. Do you love me? God, we want to love you. And we can only love you by the power of the Spirit, awakening our hearts, giving us a taste for the glory of God, to see, to savor him, and to love him more than anything in this world. So give us the affections for Christ that we so desperately want and need. Awaken our taste buds. We, we sang of it this morning. Give us, come thou fountain of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing. And now we ask the same thing, but tune our hearts now to taste. Tune our hearts to taste of the goodness and the glory of God, to taste and see that he is good. And may we never remain unaffected as we stare at the risen Christ. We love him. We pray it all in his precious name. Amen. If you want to be an effective follower of Jesus, you want to be used mightily under his strength and his power, and I trust that all of you do, then you need two things. You need two things, and Jesus is going to give those two things to Peter. He's going to tell them, these are the two things you need. Peter, you're a failure. It's clear you're a failure, and all of us can say, we are too. We're all in the same boat. The first thing that you need is the foundation of everything that you do. And it's not a doing, it's rather a devotion. So number one, the foundation of faithful discipleship is affection for Christ. If you want to be an effective follower of Jesus, you must have a foundation of an affection for Christ. You must love him. Let's pick it up in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, you remember the scene, right? They're on the Sea of Galilee. Peter is soaking wet because he dove into the water, swam out to Jesus. They have 153 fish that are in the net. The disciples are dumbfounded because they see that Jesus doesn't need any of their fish. There's fish already up there. Why did we catch all these fish? Why did we haul all these fish in? You didn't even need any of them. There's bread. There's a breakfast. And the fish are cooking on a charcoal fire. Remember that in verse 9? Charcoal fire. Why does John tell us that this is a charcoal fire? That's a very specific detail. 
Has your memory ever been awakened by a distinct smell? For me, freshly cut grass takes me instantly to playing Little League Baseball. There's a, there's a hand sanitizer smell that instantly takes me to Children's Hospital with Tyler. I don't know if you have those smells. There's smells that just, you smell it and instantly you're somewhere else. Charcoal fires are like that. They have a very distinct smell. Do you remember the last time that Peter was standing around a charcoal fire? It's in John 18, 18. Just turn back there. The slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. When was the last time that Peter was around a charcoal fire? Do do you remember when it was? I can guarantee you that Peter will never forget that night. Peter will never forget that night. There's no way he will ever forget that night. That was the worst night of his life. That was the night when he denied knowing his Savior three times around a charcoal fire. And just as Jesus had set up all of the disciples to spotlight their failures, he's setting Peter up to spotlight his failure, to remind him. Do you remember that night, Peter? Let me make a charcoal fire so that I can help you remember. He wants to spotlight Peter's specific failure. He's, John's going to tie up the loose ends. Whatever happened to Peter, we never saw a restoration. Well, here is the restoration. And around a charcoal fire, Jesus asks Peter a very simple question. He says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? There's a lot of ink that has been spilled on asking the question, what does more than these? What's the these? What are the these? What does that mean? Some say it's the fish. Totally fine. More than your job. More than what you're good at. I get that. But I think if we understand what Jesus is trying to do, Jesus is trying to take Peter back to that night when he denied knowing Christ. What had Peter said just hours before denying Christ? He had said, though all may fall away, all of these disciples, all of my brothers, they're going to fall away. I will never fall away. I'll never deny knowing you. I think Jesus is saying, do you remember that statement, Peter? You claim to love me more than these disciples. Can I ask you now, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples? He said he did. You've heard it before, right? On the lips of immature Christians, they have a misplaced confidence in their love for Jesus. I love Jesus so much. I love him more than anybody I know. I love him and there's no way I will ever stop loving him. Mature Christians don't say that anymore. Mature, mature Christians say, I really wish I loved Jesus more than anything in this world. And that's, I live my life to fight for that love. But I can sing what we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel. I wander. And the only way that I will ever love Jesus fully is because of his love that will never let go of me. Peter said, no, no, I, I'm good. I love you, Jesus, more than I love anybody, more than anybody else loves you. And here Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than these disciples? Do you? He's being mercifully brutal to Peter. He's designing this question to attack his heart and get right at the issue. And I think already Peter 
his lip is quivering a little bit. Maybe a tear is forming in his eye because he realizes he is being devastated by his Savior. And what is his answer? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But notice what he drops. He does not say, yes, Lord, you know I love you more than these disciples. He knows he cannot say that anymore. He cannot say, I love you more than these disciples. He proved that he is just like the other disciples who fell away, if not worse than the other disciples, because he denied Christ. He has learned the lesson. And I think Jesus is bringing that to the surface. Peter, you've learned. Just a few days ago, you said, I will never fall away. And now you say, you know what? My love for you, it's okay, but it's not better than anybody else's love for you. He's not comparing himself to the other disciples. In fact, Peter responds with such humility that he doesn't even speak the same word that Jesus uses for love. Jesus says, do you agape, the highest form of love? Do you love me more than anything in the world with an unconditional covenant-keeping love? Peter does not say, yeah, that's, that's the way I love you. He responds with the word phileo. He responds by saying, I love you like a brotherly love. I love you with an affection, but I cannot say that I love you in an unconditional, everlasting, covenant-keeping way because I already broke that love. I denied knowing you. Bishop Lightfoot, a couple hundred years ago, is the first one to really popularize the stark contrast between the, the words that Jesus uses, do you agape me, and the words that Peter uses, yes, I phileo you. I don't want to make too much out of it, but I do think there's enough to, to point out. Peter is humbled, and he knows that he isn't able to say, I love you the way that I thought I did. He can't say that anymore. A humbling has occurred, a shattering of self-sufficiency without which Peter would forever be ineffective in gospel ministry. Art Azurdia says it this way, at the end of the day, gospel ministry is not about your powerful gifts, your superior commitment, or your academic achievements. It's about a demeanor of life which is impacted by the gospel and illustrates the gospel as you bleed a humility that is produced by the gospel. A humility that makes crystal clear to everyone around you that you know that everything you are is owing to the grace of Jesus and nothing else. Self-reliance in discipleship and ministry is deadly because it is antithetical to the very gospel you are declaring. You cannot be preoccupied by the sufficiency of Jesus and simultaneously enamored by the powers of your own abilities. One nullifies the other. Each demands an exclusive allegiance. Peter knows this. See, in the upper room, Peter said, I'm going to be your best disciple. I'm going to be your best follower. Maybe one day I'll even become the Pope. And Jesus says, really? Look at what has happened over the course of just a few days, Peter. Now Peter knows, my love for you, it's broken. It's failing. It's defective. Peter knows this. A.W. Tozer says, it's highly unlikely that God can use a man greatly until he has first hurt him deeply. Jesus is going after his heart and he's saying, you know, I want to use you. But we have to go back to this issue. What's Jesus' response to Peter? Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus simply says, end of verse 15, tend my lambs. Tend my lambs. 
He says it again, verse 16. A second time, Simon, son of John. I love that he calls him that. That's his original name. When Jesus met Simon, his name is Simon, but Jesus says, no longer do I call you Simon, I call you Peter. Gave a nickname. This is who you're going to be now. And he says, Simon, son of John. I think that would catch Peter's attention because I think he's doing two things. Number one, he's saying, you kind of acted like your old self. Simon, kind of acted like your old self. And then he's also, you know, Simon, son of John. It's like when you're in big trouble with your parents and they say, Patrick, Stephen, Carmichael, come here. It's like your full name, Simon, son of John. This is going to make his ears kind of perk up a little bit. Wait, what's happening? And he says the exact same question. Do you love me? Do you agape me? And again, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know I love you. And he responds by saying, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Peter is grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? This time Jesus says, do you phileo me? Do you even phileo me? Do you have an effective, an affection for me? And he says to him, he pleads the omniscience of Christ. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter's self-reliance is gone. And the way that we know that his self-reliance is gone, the way that we know that he's been crushed is because this last time he pleads the omniscience of Christ, you know all things. He does not go to anything that Peter has done to offer, to say, yes, of course, you know that I love you because of what I've done. He can't say that. He can't say, of, of course, Jesus, you know that I love you because look, I did not fall away. Look at what I've done for you, Jesus. Of course I love you. No, it's in spite of what I've done for you. Yes, I love you. So Jesus, this is what he's saying. When he says, you know all things, he's saying, Jesus, please look past my works and see my heart. If all you had to look at was the outside, of course it does not look like I love you. But please, you know I love you. Jesus does not then respond by saying, okay, if you love me, do you promise never to sin again? Do you promise never to do what you did? In fact, Peter's going to kind of blow it in the next paragraph when he's going to, you know, what about John? And then he's totally going to blow it in Galatians. So he's definitely going to sin again. So how does Jesus disciple Peter? He simply asks him one question three times, responded by three answers. Do you love me? And there's no coincidence here for the number of times he asks, right? Three denials, three questions to counter each denial and restore Peter. Peter, will you feed my sheep? Will you tend my lambs? Will you shepherd my sheep? Notice Jesus says, these are my sheep. They're not yours, but I'm asking you. You're entrusted with working with them. Will you love them? Peter's not better, but worse than other people. He knows that. There's nothing in his love that merits boasting. His prideful strength has been weakened, and now he's ready to go strengthen his brothers. Remember what Jesus said uh, when he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And there's no response whether or not that was a yes or no that Jesus answers. 
He just says, this is the question that he asked me, and I'm praying for you, and when you have been restored, go and strengthen your brothers. Here's the moment. You've been restored. Yes, you've fallen, but you've been restored. Now go, strengthen your brothers. He can do that now because he has been devastated. People that think that their love for God is better than other people are really useless in the service of the king. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, then I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. Brotherly love will find any number of extenuations for the sins of others, but for my sin there is no apology whatsoever. Therefore, my sin is the worst. He would serve his brother. He who would serve his brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. Do you have a deep and felt sense of your inabilities, of your weakness, of your unworthiness? If you are, then you are a self-conscious sinner. And if you are a self-conscious sinner, you're aware of your weaknesses, you are aware, aware of your failings, then you can be used by God. You know what failure means, so you can deal lovingly with those who fail. A self-righteous person is a brutal weapon in the hands of the enemy. So Jesus says, do you know how you've fallen, how you failed, and one question, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Notice, if you want to have faithful, enduring, effective discipleship ministry with other people, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness and help others grow in Christ-likeness, Jesus is not asking Peter, do you love to preach? Do you love to teach? Do you love to shepherd? Do you love to lead? He says very simply, do you love me? Because if you love me, everything else will take care of itself. You will love people well if you love Christ. Do you love Jesus? That's the foundation. If you want to be an effective follower of Jesus and you want to be used mightily by him under his strength and by his power, you need two things. The first is your foundation must be your love for Christ. Do you love Jesus? The second thing that Jesus is going to say to Peter now is you must faithfully be giving of your allegiance to Jesus. You must give your allegiance. You must have affection to him, for him and allegiance to him. And he's going to say that in verse 18. After saying for the third time, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 18, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. This is a proverb that was well known in Jesus's day. It's a uh, meaning freedom. It's de describing and depicting the freedom that you would have. You can dress yourself. The only thing that you had to really care about is what I'm going to wear, and then you can go wherever you want. But you don't have that freedom any longer, Peter, because one day when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And that word, I think is a play on words, because that word can be used to mean fasten or nail. Somebody else is going to gird you, fasten your hands, and bring you where you do not wish to go. You're going to stretch your hands out. Somebody's going to nail them to a tree. 
Now, if we didn't have the next sentence, we'd kind of look and go, what does he mean by that? But don't you just love when, as you're asking that question of the Bible, wait, what do you mean, Jesus? Verse 19 says, now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Oh, phew, we know exactly what he was meaning. He's saying, Peter, you're going to die by being crucified on a cross. How would you feel if you were Peter, you just saw your Savior brutally murdered on a cross. And now he says to you, guess what? The same death that I died, that's going to be yours. I think number one, Peter is going to be incredibly terrified. He knows how he's going to die, and he just saw what that looked like. He's seen it maybe every month of his life growing up around Jerusalem, around Galilee, he knows this is the form of execution for the worst of the worst criminals, and nobody ever wants to have to go through this. What do you think every morning would feel like waking up knowing, I'm going to be crucified, and I don't know if it's going to be today. What if you walk by a Roman guard? You're thinking, is this going to be the guy that's going to arrest me, that's going to take me in, that's going to crucify me? Peter would know every second of every day that it's only a matter of time before he himself would be fastened to a piece of wood. I think he'd be terrified. But I think overpowering the emotion of terror and horror, I think hearing Jesus say these words, you're going to die being nailed to a cross, I think that makes Peter's heart sore. Because he's just been told by a Savior, you're going to make it. You're going to get to the end. And the next time somebody asks you, do you know Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? You denied me three times, but the next time you're going to say, yes, he is my treasure. He's my delight. I love him more than anything in this world. And nothing you can do to me will ever take that love away. I think this makes his heart sore. I'm going to die for Jesus. I just struggled with a slave girl around a charcoal fire saying, I'm, I'm afraid, I, I don't know him, a, a slave girl, and I'm going to be able to die by being crucified. And we know, tradition tells us, upside down, I'm going to be crucified for my Savior. Jesus is going to keep me. He's going to hold me fast to the end. So as his heart is soaring, Jesus says to him, follow me. Do you love me? Now the command, follow me. Do you love me? Follow me. Affection for Jesus, allegiance to Jesus. Follow me. Now, here's where Peter kind of starts to slip up. Because verse 20, Peter turns around and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John. And he says, verse 20, what about this guy? What about him? Now, we don't know how he's asking this. We don't know why he's asking this. Maybe he thinks Jesus is just passing out your death cards. Like, this is how you're going to die. This is how it's going down. This is what's going to happen. Here you go, you know. And so he's just saying, this is how it's all going down. So he says, what about him? We haven't heard about him yet. What's, what about him? But I think that there's an aspect where Peter might be wondering, everybody else was falling away. John kind of didn't. You told me to follow you. And there might be a little bit of distraction here. I think as believers, we tend to get so distracted by what's going on with other people. What are they doing? What aren't they doing? Now, I get this because in discipleship, there should be concern for one another. Make sure others are following Christ. Help them, encourage them. 
But in so much as your distraction, looking at other people is a distraction from you pursuing Jesus, then it's not valid and it's very dangerous. I think Peter's struggling with that, even here. That's why Jesus answers, verse 22, look, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, Jesus isn't saying, I want him to remain. It's if. And that's why John tells us, this is another loose end that's being tied up. Verse 23, therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. People thought that John was not going to die until Jesus came back. But Jesus didn't say that. He just said, if. It's hyperbole. If that's what I wanted, I can make that happen. But that doesn't change your job. And that's what Jesus says. End of verse 22. If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. It doesn't change your job. Peter, do you love me? Peter, will you follow me? Do you love me? Will you follow me? Verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. I was there, John's saying. I was there. I wrote these things down. I know that his testimony is true, and I'm passing it on to you so we all collectively know. One of the things that we studied in our Family Bible Hour series with why we believe the Bible's true. It was written down by the very people that were walking with Jesus. It was written in the exact same time frame, so it's not generations removed. We're not talking about some tall tale that's grown over thousands of years. It was written in the exact lifetime of these disciples, some by the disciples themselves. And then John says this, there are also many other things which Jesus did. My question is, why aren't they here? And John tells us, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Not all the books that are in the world currently, fill them all up, couldn't contain it. No, he's saying, if the entirety of the world was filled with books, so that there's just books everywhere, and you can't even walk around, still it wouldn't be able to contain the works of Jesus. Where are those works? Where is the info? Where are we ever going to find it out? I heard one pastor say, it's in the cloud. <laughs> it's in God's cloud. We're, we're going to go there. We're going to spend an eternity getting to see these things, learn these things. Now, you might sit there and say, okay, we've come to the end. How does this really apply to my life? Because this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Peter failed, denied Christ. I haven't really had the opportunities that Peter's had to deny Christ. Where does this fit in my life? There's actually a lot of similarities between Jesus' dealing with Peter and Jesus dealing with us. Number one, Jesus knew that Peter would sin before it ever happened. He called him out on it. You're going to deny me. And he knows, Jesus knows, that we're going to sin before we ever sin. Jesus worked to restrain Peter's sin so that he ultimately would not fail. I'm praying for you, and when you are restored, go and strengthen the brothers. Jesus does that with us. We've seen that in the Gospel of John. He is our great high priest who's praying right now for us, and he will bring us safely home to glory. Jesus intended to use Peter's sin for good, that he would go and minister. He intends to do that with us as well. He intends for our sin to humble us so that we can go and strengthen others. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We listen to Jesus asking us the same question he asked Peter. Do you 
love me. Notice it's not, did you love me? It's not, have you loved me? It's not, will you love me? It's currently in this moment, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you have affections for me? And will you follow me? Will you obey me? Will you sacrifice for me? Will you give of your heart, your mind, your body, your money, your affections, your time, your ability, your emotions? I want all of it, Jesus says. I want your love and I want your life. Do you love me? Will you follow me? The two are linked, right? You follow what you love. You follow what you love. I can tell what you love based on what you use your time, your treasures, your talents for. I know what you love because you serve whatever it is that you love. So Jesus is asking very simply, do you love me? And with a greater love for me than you have for anything else in this world, will you follow me? Is Jesus more valuable to you than everything else in this world? We've been studying a gospel that has been showing us he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. He is more glorious than anything this world has to offer. Will you follow him because you love him more than anything in this world? Is your affection for him greater than any other person, including yourself? Do you love him more than you love anyone in this world, including the love that you have for yourself? Do you love his people? Does your love for Christ flow out to your love for his people? And do you love to shepherd his people? Do you love to love his people and care for his people? And do you follow him? Do you obey his commands? Obviously, we do not do that perfectly. Were it not for the grace of God, I would sin myself into eternal condemnation. That's why we go back to the first foundation. One is a foundation. One is a prerequisite. Do you love me? Now your priority, if you love me, is you're going to follow me. You're going to do that very imperfectly. But the foundation, the prerequisite is, do you love me? That's where the priority flows from, because you have a love for Christ. Peter gets this, by the way. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. We ask the question, Peter, what do you do with this message? What do you do with this message where Jesus says, do you love me? Did, did that stick in Peter's mind? I think it did. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ and... Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him yet, Peter says, but you love him. And that's the question. Do you love Jesus? How do you grow love for Jesus? You grow love for Jesus by spending time with him. Are you in his word daily? Are you with other believers that are encouraging you, like we studied in the book of Hebrews, to stimulate you to love and good deeds, to help you to grow in your love for Christ? The priority as a church, the priority individually, the priority that we have until the day we see Jesus face to face 
is to love him more than anything in this world. That's why we are a church. That's why we planted our church. That's the mission statement of our church. We want to glorify God and magnify him by making disciples and shepherding them to value Christ, to love him more than anything in this world. And I pray that our study in the Gospel of John has encouraged your heart, has at times been mercifully brutal as Jesus has crushed and devastated us, but here he restores us. He just, at the end of this Gospel, says, hey, we're all failures, and Jesus says to us, do you love me? And will you follow me? Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word. We thank you for the Gospel of John that we've been able to spend so much time in this amazing book and see our Savior. We just want to see him. We want to love him. And the more that we see him, the more that we will love him. The more that we love him, the more we desire to see him. So it's just a beautiful cycle that's grown in our hearts, that's grown in our church. And that same question that you asked Peter so many years ago, you're asking to us today, do you love me? And we say the same thing as Peter. We plead your omniscience because if you just look at our externals alone, it doesn't look like we're doing a good job loving you. But on the inside, God, you know, as far as it's possible with us in our hearts, God, we love you and we want to love you more. And so we pray that you would do whatever you must do to knock out those legs from under us, to, to rip up our anchors that are placed in any other treasure other than you. And today we collectively say, yes, we love you and our desire is to follow you, but we will never bank on our commitment to you as to what's going to get us to the end. Our commitment will waver. Our commitment will falter. Our commitment will fail. We want to follow you because we love you but we need you and your love to cling to us and to hold us close and to bring us safely home. And knowing that that is a reality, that your love, nothing can separate us from your love, that leads us, that compels us to love you and to live for you. Father, thank you for Jesus. May we glorify him now as we respond to his amazing grace. We pray it in his name. Amen.